Let's turn to Matthew 6. If you've been around for a while, you'll know that we are continuing in a series that we've been in for a little while, but it doesn't matter if you've missed what's to come. You can catch up. I'm kidding. You don't need to. Um, You can download them if you want to, but um, really every sort of little nugget section of this sermon, it ties in with the whole, but it also has a kind of standalone effect. So we're going to read the first six verses of Matthew chapter 6, sorry, the first four four verses, and uh, I trust that this is going to be um, impactful to us all this afternoon. Beware, Jesus says, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. One of the, um, one of the greatest, strongest, most prevalent, persistent objections people have to Christianity um, is very often the charge that Christians are hypocrites. So people look at the church and they see a tainted history and they look at Christians they know or churches they know and see what they think is a double standard, that we say one thing and do another. And I think if ever I was talking to someone on this subject, the first thing I'd want to say is, um, yes, it's true. There really is no point trying to sort of pretend that Christians are, are perfect or better or anything of the kind. And in fact, if you know the gospel, you know that Christ calls us to be broken and to recognize our brokenness and our need of him, first and foremost. But I don't think we can leave it there. We, I think it's so important, and this may be your objection to Christianity, I think it's so important that people then take a look at Jesus. Sure, you may, you may have looked at Christians and thought, what kind of a faith is this? But if you look at Jesus, I think people have consistently found There is one who said and lived in a way that had perfect integrity. His disciples, you may not realize, they traveled with him and they all would sort of stay in the same places and walk together and go on roads together from place to place. If you hang out with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're going to see the bad side of me. But his disciples saw Jesus in every possible context, and they were not disillusioned with him. And it's not just that Jesus was perfect in his, in his life, but also his teaching, as we'll see, takes into account the very charge that people level against Christianity. He assumes that religious people are going to be hypocrites. And he, he taught more and understood more acutely the problem of hypocrisy than we do or than those who, who charge it against us do. So you, I think it's so important to pay attention to what Jesus has to say about it. And now in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, what he does is he, he zooms in on three sort of massively important issues for religious people of all kind of faiths. The giving... Praying and fasting, which is going without food for a certain amount of time. 
And if you know anything about religions, you'll know that the Jews emphasize these massively, that Christians came to emphasize these enormously, that the Muslims subsequently as well. They're three of the five pillars of Islam, along with um, the Hajj, the kind of um, the pilgrimage to Mecca, and uh, recitation of the creed um, to do with uh, Muhammad and so on. And I say all that because... What Christ is wanting to do is he's wanting to dig into some of the most important things about what it means to be a pious person. Somebody who, who counts themselves as having a relationship with God and then tell you what, what he understands by those things. And I want, to, I want us to think about three things today about this. I'm just going to list them off for you now so that you can sort of have a roadmap for where we're going. The first, that the appearance of godliness is not necessarily godliness. The appearance of godliness is not necessarily godliness. The second, that what you are in secret, you are in reality. What you are in secret, you are in reality. And third, that generosity of heart is a powerful indicator of the kind of faith you have. Your generosity is a display or an indicator of what kind of faith you have. We're going to start at the start. The appearance of godliness is not necessarily godliness. Isn't that what Jesus is saying here? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. What he's interested in here is the issue of motives. Most of us who are professing Christians do Christian things. We come here on Sundays, we sing and worship, we pray, we dress like Christians, socks and sandals and all the rest of it. We do Christian things that display a kind of outward model of what it means to be a Christian. But we know in all of life that motive is so vital to whether an action has worth or not. I always think when, I come up to a gen- when it comes up to a general election, one of the things that's so, so obvious to us, isn't it, is that you're not sure how much you can trust of what, what, pe- what politicians are saying because they're trying to garner votes. So if they say we're the compassionate party who cares about such and such a group, it seems to me that that message comes out with so much more force and and prevalence in the run-up to an election. And you immediately think, well, are you really compassionate people? Surely your motives have to be mixed a little bit here, that you're trying to get votes. So we know this in all of life, don't we? That motive is connected with whether the things you do mean anything or have any any, any worth, whether they're sincere. How much more then, when it comes to religious matters, it's probably the area where we're most tempted to fake it, but where it's the most stupid to, to, to attempt to do so, because God is, cannot be fooled. It's not as though you can pretend to be one thing and God won't see it, that you're, you're, you're pretending. You remember the, that verse in 1 Samuel where um, Samuel's going out looking for, to anoint the next man to be king. And he, he finds King David uh, when David's just a shepherd boy. And there's that amazing, those amazing words where it says that God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. He looks on your heart. He doesn't look just at what you do, the what. He looks at why you do it. He understands your motives better than you do, which is the most frightening thought imaginable, isn't it? 
What Jesus is particularly interested in then when he's trying to uncover this whole issue of motives is this one in particular. The temptation to be people pleasers. And I want to ask you as we start to get into this, are you the kind of person who lives for the approval of others? Are you someone who, you know, when you look at your life, are you a performer? Does your outer life differ from what's going on inside? One of the ways you'd know if this was true is if you feel stressed out at the potential of not meeting someone's approval or elated when you do. This is a more powerful force in most people's lives than any of us are willing to admit or acknowledge. It drives so much human endeavor and action and attainment, doesn't it? The desire to please other people. That's what Jesus is interested in here. What he calls it in the next verse, where he says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. He calls it hypocrisy. Some of you will know this, but the word hypocrite comes from a Greek word, which is very similar, which is hypocrites. And it was the word that was used of actors. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being actor. I want to hasten to mention this, because <laughs> 10% of our church are actors. So... Uh, they may not tithe anything, but they're lovely to have around. <laughs> sorry. No, that was intensely mean, wasn't it? I'm sorry. Um, I actually wouldn't know. I just want to mention that, by the way. I don't, I don't look at the finances, so other people do that. Um, anyway, I'm digging a hole. Um, okay, let's think about this. The Greek word Hippocrates, actor. He says, don't, don't sound a trumpet before you as the actors do, the hypocrites do, and the synagogues and on the streets. A couple of things you need to understand about these, these actors in the ancient world. One is that they, um, they used to perform ancient plays to a chorus or a choir. And there was this kind of give and take where the actor would do whatever they do, and then the chorus, the choir, would sing a kind of commentary on what they were doing. And in fact, the very word itself, Hippocrates, means to kind of answer to a chorus, answer to a choir. So one writer put it this way. He says that when Jesus is using this of the religious people, he's saying their eyes were fixed on the chorus of men's opinions about them. And of course, by inference, not on what God thinks. Another thing you have to understand about these actors in the ancient world, and I think this is what Jesus is calling to mind when he says this, is that they didn't use makeup to, to enter into a role. They used masks which means they probably were not very talented actors, were they, in the first place. But they would cover their face entirely. And it's a very vivid picture, isn't it, of what what Jesus is talking about here. That you might be somebody who does the right things, but your very actions are a mask to cover up what is going on inside your heart. And the absence of genuine faith and the reality, the real thing. I find it really ironic, by the way, as a side note, that it's just a strange irony and twist of things in our modern culture, that whenever we um, have a particular cause that's getting media attention, isn't it often actors who make that more fashionable and a more um, sort of, they, want to get, they, they call in the actors to get behind these things? I'm saying it's wrong, but it's just 
an intriguing thing. So even just this week, um, there was a video going around Facebook, wasn't there, where an actor's appealing to us with his most um, deep voice and compassionate tones on behalf of the Syrian refugees. And I find it interesting for a couple of reasons. That One is that you know, the actor has nothing to, get, nothing to lose in, 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 in portraying themselves in this way as this compassionate person and everything to gain. Because uh, obviously they get the public think, wow, that's such a good person. And, you know, the cynic in me also wants to point out that how do we know they're not acting when they're talking to camera? How, how sincere is that? Now, I'm only saying that because I think as a commentary on what Jesus is saying here, it's just enlightening, isn't it? Jesus doesn't want us to be actors. He doesn't want us to be, people to be suspicious of our motives. He wants us to be totally, completely sincere in life, in the way that we live. And so what he does is he lampoons this hypocritical way of conducting yourself. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. I don't think anyone actually literally did this. It wasn't like, it was, it wasn't like you're Zebediah has given one denarius to a poor person. It wasn't like that. Eugene has sold PJ's engagement ring to fund, <laughs> to fund Grace London for three years. So... Uh, it's beautiful. You need to have a look at that thing. Um, Jesus is lampooning it. He's trying to sort of paint a caricature of what was going on when these guys were so publicly and ceremoniously, you know, opening their robes and pulling out their purses and dropping the money in the money box at the front of the temple for everyone to see or whatever they were doing. And, you know, when we think about it in these extreme terms, we can think, well, that's so disconnected from the way we conduct ourselves today. But actually, friends, it is not at all. We have our own ways of blowing our own trumpets. That's where the phrase comes from, of course. We have our own ways of blowing our own trumpets to just, just make it very clear how, how very godly and how very generous we are. I always think it's a strange thing that when you go in old churches, you see plaques all around the wall, don't you? So-and-so gave this much to fund the, the rebuilding of the roof or this much to repair the stained glass windows or this much for the pews and whatever. And you think, guys, have you actually read the Bible? But we're no different. One of the most... Common um, sort of criticisms of social media is that it's so easy to portray something that you are not on your Facebook page or your, your Twitter feed. And we can do it in this as well. You know, it's very easy for me to appear to be a compassionate, loving person if I just go around surfing the web for lefty leaning articles on all kinds of compassionate issues and post them on my Facebook page. Am I doing anything about the issue? No, not necessarily. But I can, I can easily blow a trumpet. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying, by the way, it's automatically wrong to do so. I'm just trying to help you to see that we're no less guilty of this. We have ways of doing it. You can think about how even when we volunteer and, you know, in charities or for church work, it may be the most wonderfully motivated thing you've ever done, or it may not be. You may just be doing it because it makes you look good. You know, guys who volunteer in the crash just to make it look like they love children so they'll get a girlfriend. (laughs) People, you know, I think probably one of my bugbears, and I'm sure many of you have done this, so just lap it up, is the whole sponsored thing. You know, sponsored runs, or when it gets to be fun stuff, sponsored bungee jumps. I'd love to go bungee. Sponsored parachute jumping. Sponsored eating. Like, what on earth is that about? I love eating. There is no cost involved. 
But when people are sort of like putting it out like they are somehow a, a generous person, I'm doing this for cancer research, I'm doing this for whatever, and I'm doing it you know, for sponsorship, it's easy to put across an image of ourselves that does not necessarily correspond with what our hearts are about. And I'm sure in more serious ways, we do it all the time, don't we? Do you remember how Jesus says, there's a parable, we won't read the whole thing, we won't read it in Matthew 25, where he says, what you do for these, the least of your brothers, you do for me, or, or what you don't do, you don't do for me. The parable is about, first and foremost, how as Christians you treat other Christians in your fellowship, people you know, people who are in need around you. That's what it's about. And it's so much easier to be concerned about big issues that are out there and, and apart from you and make you look like a compassionate person than it is to care for the person who is actually sat next to you. It's easier to put on this display of compassion than for the reality to be there. And I speak of myself as much as I'm sure you resonate with what I'm saying. The bottom line then, when he says... When he's saying, telling us that the appearance of godliness is not necessarily godliness, is that you can fake it, friends. You can absolutely fake it in the Christian life. Jesus said it long before the critics said it about the church. That brings us to the second thing. That what you are in secret, you are in reality. I want you to pay careful attention to, to what Jesus is saying here. Because he, he repeats a number of phrases. I told you at the beginning that first he talks about giving, then he talks about praying, and then he talks about fasting. And each, each of those three examples, he repeats repeat certain phrases. Two negative ones and two positive ones. The negative ones are this. He says, in order to be seen by men, you give, you pray, you fast, in order to be seen by men. And the other one, he says, is they have received their reward. They gave and got praise, they received their reward. They prayed, they got praise, they received their reward. They fasted, they got praise, they've received their reward. He also repeats a couple of other phrases that we can think of in a more positive light. He talks about, in all three, in all three examples, he talks about your father who is in heaven or who is in secret. And he talks about your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, his use of repetition in these three examples is very deliberate. I think what he's trying to do, if we look at this in a kind of analytical way, what is Jesus showing us here? I think we can, we can summarize it like this. That the battle of the Christian life is the battle between what you see and what you believe by faith. That all around you, you have the opportunity to play to the crowd who you see. And to receive from them the instant gratification of their approval and admiration. That's what it is to live by sight. To live as though this life is all it's about. And therefore, if I put on display to get the most people to love me, I'm going to live a happy life. And we do it, as Christians, we do it in all, all kinds of ways. And the alternative to that is that you can live by faith. Which is to say, you live for what is unseen. For the God who is unseen. Which of course means that you are living for a reward which you will not necessarily see in this life. That's what Jesus keeps reiterating. Because it takes profound faith to go about your life 
doing things in secret knowing that no one sees you but God because you have to believe that he sees you. You have to believe that he'll want to reward you. That's the wrench, isn't it, between whether you will live for what is seen or what is unseen. And I want to push that further and say that therefore what you are in secret reveals what kind of faith you have. That's what you are in reality. If you have the fear of God in your heart, your secret life will be absolutely consistent with the life that you live before men. If everyone believed this, so much of what we see going on in the world around us would not go on. We wouldn't be hearing of aging celebrities who've lived lives of grotesque perversion, abusing children. God sees in secret. We wouldn't be hearing breaking news of websites designed for the sole purpose of providing a context to meet people to have adultery. We wouldn't be hearing of those websites being hacked and the, the contact details being distributed all around the world. Because if people really believe that God sees in secret, they would act consistently in the secret place. Or to put it more positively, if people really believe this, how refreshing it would be if everyone you met you knew they had perfect integrity, which just means oneness, doesn't it? That what they are on the outside, they are inside. That there's no two-facedness to, to their person. They're not wearing a mask. When they smile and say hello, they, they mean it. And, of course, much more than that. What you are in secret, you are in reality. What you are when no one's looking, that's the kind of faith you have. That's not to say, by the way, that Jesus is only interested in what you do in secret. I think that would be pushing it a little bit too far if we were to say that Jesus is only interested in your secret life. He's also interested in what you do in public as well. And we could make it sound a little bit stupid if we we kind of separated out the two things. Some people do that, by the way. They, They make out like it's just what's going on in your heart that matters. Nothing else matters. It's nonsense, which leads us into the last point. The generosity of heart is a very good indicator of the kind of faith you have, the relationship with God that you have. Are you a generous person? Do you see your possessions as an opportunity to love and bless others, to love God and to love your neighbor, the two greatest commandments? Generosity is a, an amazing litmus test of the kind of faith you have. Why? Because I would go so far as to say this, that a Christian is by nature a generous person. They have to be, because of what God's done in their life. Now when you talk about this, I think a lot of Christians are confused and they push back. Because if you know anything about the Christian faith, let me just summarize for you what we believe. We believe that God gave law to the Israelites. That everyone who tried to fulfill it failed abysmally. If not in their actions, then definitely in their hearts. And that God in his compassion 
had a plan to give us a way to be right with him, to be forgiven. Which was not that you have to keep the law, but rather that he would forgive you by grace. Which is that why he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross. So that he would give his, pour his blood out. We were singing about it, weren't we? He carried the weight of your sin. He took your sin off you. Because you are so imperfect that he might give you his goodness, his righteousness. And many people push back and say, well, if that is the story of Christianity, if that's what a Christian believes, it doesn't matter then how you live, does it? And, they, and on an issue like this, they say, we're not under any obligation. Sure, the Old Testament might have talked about generosity and giving as a very important thing. But we as Christians, we're not under law. We're forgiven by grace. And therefore, I am under no obligation to give away the money that is mine. And I would say to you, that is a complete perversion and misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. Christ says that in God pouring out his grace upon your life, he doesn't expect you to be worse than they were before we experienced that grace. He expects so much more. Which is why earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, in other words, the law keepers, you will never enter the kingdom. The Old Testament had a great deal to say about this whole matter of generosity. There were laws, I mentioned them a couple of months ago, about, for example, about gleaning, which meant that since many, most people were farmers, you know, farming their plot of land, that's how they made their living. And anyone who was poor, who perhaps that their, their farm had burned or been flooded or they, they, they'd lost their land in, when they got into debt or something of that kind, they could go around the various fields and the farmers were instructed under the law not to not to reap all their harvest, but to leave some of the, the fruit around the edge of their fields so that the poor people could go through and just gather enough to eat for, the, for their day-to-day provision. There were laws about lending to people. It says when you lend to people, the way you ought to do it, and how you can't you know, charge interest, and, and how you can't sort of abuse them in the lending of money. And he says, and by the way, there was, a, there was a year that would come around every so often when all the debts were just cancelled. Do you remember the millennium movement to cancel the debts in Africa in the third, third, um, third world? Well, this would happen as a matter of course in Israeli life, in, in the Jewish calendar. And God says, when you know that that time is coming when all the debts are going to be cancelled, don't refuse to lend money just because you know you're not going to get it back. There was an absolute obligation on people to be generous towards others around them. Perhaps the most famous verses on the subject come in Isaiah 58, when um, one of the prophets is sort of laying into the Israelites about their lack of sincerity. And he says this, Is this not the fast, it's God speaking, is this not the fast that I choose? He says, your problem is that you're fasting, but your life doesn't match your outward display of religiosity. It says, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, in other words, to free people, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Oppressed people were people who were downtrodden in society. And then he goes on, he says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? I'm wanting to say all this because I want you to understand that when Jesus was preaching to people about what it means to truly be a Christian, what it truly means to be a follower of Christ, 
he didn't think all of this just became irrelevant. He thought all of this became even more pointed and more relevant than ever in the life of a believer. That, friends, you are called to be generous of heart, not just in action. And as I said to you, I think that this is the natural response of somebody who is truly a believer in Christ. For two great reasons. The one is that you have experienced in your past the generosity of God towards you. Totally undeserved. And the other is that you can look forward to his continued generosity in your life. Way above and beyond anything you could possibly claim to have earned. We don't think in terms of doing good things to earn anything from God. It is all lavishly poured upon you as a gift. That's what it means to be under grace, God's grace towards you. I think one of the most pointed verses on this subject is in Romans 8 when Paul writes this. He says that God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has demonstrated his generosity to you in giving you Jesus. And when you as a Christian feel the full weight of what that means, you cannot withhold generosity towards others. And if you do, it shows you you never understood God's grace towards you in the first place. How then are we called to give? The obvious answer is secretly. And I just want to say a few comments on that before we finish. When Jesus says that we ought to give secretly, and to use his expression here, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is not meant to be understood as an absolute. It's not like you can't do something if, some, if there's a slight risk that somebody might actually find out about it. <laughs> that would be sort of like pushing it to the, to the level of absurdity. And it doesn't mean that this is a cover-up for mishandling the finances that God's given you. I think some people are generous just because they have no idea how much money they do or don't have. They're just terrible with finance. And, and therefore, I don't think Jesus is saying, look, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing, which means you know, don't, keep a, don't keep a record or a budget or, or handle your finances responsibly. Just give away everything. Some people have got themselves in a lot of trouble doing that. It's not very wise. It's not clever at all. And he doesn't mean that this is a cover-up for being miserly as well. This would be the most tempting and yet... Um, I think it would be the worst way to, that we could possibly twist Jesus' words here. That in him saying that we're not meant to give in this public display, that you use it as an opportunity not to give at all. And no one would ever know. Because we don't do it publicly. That's worse than the Pharisees. At least the Pharisees gave away even if it was for the praise of men. <laughs> Friends, God is calling us to our highest standards still. If I can put it positively as we close, it's like this. But when he calls you to give secretly... It's for two protections. The one is to protect you from putting people above God. Surely that is, ought to be the highest ideal in your life as a Christian, that God would come first. Christ is enough for me. 
Christ my all in all. It's the essence of what we've been singing. Why Jesus wants us to, to have lives that in secret are consistent with the external is that we would truly put God above other people in terms of the praise of man. And so it means that. It also means this, to protect us from feeding our pride and self-righteousness. The part of the sense of what he's saying here is that we're not meant to dwell on how great we are. When you give away something that you own to somebody else who's in need, you don't ruminate on it and think about it and rehearse it in your mind and let that warm glow resurface every time you think about how generous and kind you are. Because by doing so, you're just feeding the pride and self-righteousness that militates against walking humbly with God. When we give away, it's not because we're great people. It's because God has done a great work in us and saved us by his grace. And our possessions really are not our own. I think Jesus wants to protect us from the self-righteousness that can build up when you think you're something and you're not. And so friends, as we bring this to a close, I want us to take communion. And I want to read to you again that verse in Romans 8 that we just read that brings all of this to such clear focus, doesn't it? That he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As we take communion now, I want to encourage you to let that be your meditation and your thought. That God gave you his son, gave you Jesus. And that Jesus gave himself and that he went willingly to the cross. There is nothing more precious that God could ever give you than the gift of his son's life. This is the most powerful and potent motivation to be generous people. So as we're taking this and as we pass the bread around, I think it's just a really great opportunity, first of all, to to give thanks to God. And then second, to think, God, how do you want me to put this into practice? What do you want me to do as a result? I'm not going to tell you what to do. And you don't need to tell me what you're doing. But it's between you and God, isn't it? What happens in the secret of your own heart. How you want to to be a giver on the back of what Christ is challenging us to to do here. So let's pass the bread around. Let's take this opportunity to meditate on these things.